Good morning. Um, this morning's reading is from Genesis chapter 43, verses 1 to 14. Now the famine was still severe in the land, so when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go, buy, go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, The man warned us solemnly, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. Because the man said to us, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Israel asked, Why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? He asked us. Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How were we to know he would say, Bring your brother down here? Then Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy along with me and we will go at once, so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift, a little balm and a little honey, some spices and myrrh, some pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put back into, your, into the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once. And may, and may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your, let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Amen. James. <coughs> Good morning, everyone. Uh, we're actually working through three chapters this morning, uh, Genesis 43 to 45. But before we open God's Word, let's uh, pray and ask God uh, to help us understand it. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, our lives are in your hands, and uh, we pray that as we look at this part of your Word this morning, you'd grant us a deeper understanding uh, of, yeah, the control that you have. Uh, help us to trust in you through all that we look at and help us to uh, love Jesus more. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, wouldn't it be nice to be able to predict the future? Wouldn't it be nice to know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow or next year or the year after that? Have you ever found yourself thinking that? Uh, if you haven't, lots of people in our society have. Our society is captivated by the idea of being able to predict the future. First of all, our society is obsessed with horoscopes, which are all about predicting the future. But secondly, our society is obsessed with movies that are all about predicting the future, like Back to the Future or Groundhog Day or more recently, the Edge of Tomorrow. I could name a hundred more movies like those. Now, why are we as a society so captivated by predicting the future? 
Here's why. Because if you can predict the future, then you can have total control of your life. You can make everything go your way. You can fulfill all your plans. And that's actually what all those movies are about too. The characters in those movies can predict the future and they use their ability to control uh, their situation and make things go the way they want them to go. But as we all know, life doesn't work like that. Life is unpredictable. We don't know what's going to happen in the future and often we don't have any control over our situation. Things go very differently to the way we plan them to go, the way we want them to go. We plan to get that promotion. You know, we plan to get good marks on that assignment. We plan to live a long and happy life. We plan all sorts of things. But life is unpredictable. Life often doesn't turn out the way we planned it to. And in those moments, when life doesn't turn out the way we planned it to, we can find ourselves asking, where's God? Where's God when you don't get the promotion you thought you were going to get? When you fail that assignment you thought you were going to pass? When instead of living a long and happy and healthy life, you get diagnosed with sickness or cancer? Where's God when life doesn't go the way you want it to go? When life is out of your control? When life is unpredictable? And that's the question we're asking this morning as we look at the story of Joseph. We're wrapping up our four-part sermon series on Joseph at the moment, in case uh, you've joined us for the first time this morning. This is the final sermon in the series. And for the last three weeks, we've been asking the question, where is God? So three weeks ago, we looked at the question, where is God when life is a mess, when our lives are affected by circumstances involving sin? So we saw how Joseph was the innocent victim of his brother's sin. They were jealous of him, so they sold him into slavery in Egypt, and they covered up their sin by lying to their father about what happened. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the question, where's God when life is unfair, when our lives are affected by circumstances involving injustice? And so we saw how Joseph was unfairly accused of misconduct in Egypt and thrown into a dungeon, even though he had been promoted by Potiphar for working hard and acting with integrity. We saw then how he interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker when he was in prison. The baker was executed and the cupbearer was restored, but the cupbearer totally forgot about Joseph. Uh, last week, we looked at the question, where's God when life is hard, when our lives are affected by difficult circumstances that are unexplainable? So we saw how Joseph was delivered from his life of hardship in the dungeon in Egypt when he was promoted to second in command by Pharaoh after interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. And we also saw how Joseph's brothers came to Egypt in hardship during seven years of famine looking for grain, but Joseph, who they didn't recognize, treated him, them harshly and like strangers. And this week we're looking at the question, where is God when life is unpredictable? Now, this is similar to what we looked at last week, but this time we're specifically asking the question, where's God when your life is out of control, when nothing in your life goes to plan? And as we work through these next three chapters in Genesis, we'll see three people in the story, Jacob, Judah, and Joseph. They each have their own plans, 
but nothing goes to plan for any of them, in spite of everything they try to do to control their circumstances. But here's the beauty of this story. God has a plan for each of them, a completely different plan to their plan, and we'll see how God's plan plays out as the story unfolds. So if you still have your Bible handy, open up to Genesis 43, or you can just follow along on the screen. Uh, In the first 14 verses that were just read out, uh, we learn about the plans of Jacob, Joseph's father, and also the plans of Judah, Joseph's older brother. Uh, Verses 1 and 2. Jacob's plan is to send his sons back to Egypt to get more grain because they've run out and they're in the middle of a great famine. But he doesn't want to send his youngest son, Benjamin, down to Egypt because ever since he lost Joseph, Benjamin has become Jacob's new favourite son and he doesn't want anything bad to happen to him. So that's Jacob's plan, right? Send his sons to Egypt to get more grain without Benjamin. Now here's the problem. The last time the brothers went down to Egypt, which we looked at last week, they were accused of being spies by the master of the grain, who they didn't realise was their long-lost brother Joseph. They were thrown into prison, they were all released three days later, except their brother Simeon, who was held hostage, and they were explicitly told, don't come back without your little brother. And so already, Jacob's plan is falling apart. Uh, Judah knows that there's no point going to Egypt without Benjamin, and so he tells his dad in verses 3 and 5, he's not going to Egypt if he doesn't have Benjamin with him, because of what the man said to them. Now, Jacob gets really angry at this point, because Jacob actually is a habitual liar, he's been a liar his whole life, and his sons have broken the cardinal rule of lying, always keep your cards close to your chest always hide the truth. And so Jacob says to his sons in verse 6, why on earth did you tell the man you had a little brother? And the brothers reply in verse 7, well, he was asking about our family, you know, how were we meant to know he was going to ask us to bring Benjamin to Egypt? And that's when Judah comes up with his plan, verses 8 to 10. He tells Jacob to send Benjamin with them down to Egypt and he himself will be personally responsible and accountable for him. If I don't bring him back, he says in verse 9, I will bear the blame my whole life. Now, this is a big deal. In the previous chapter, the oldest son, Reuben, tried the same trick with Jacob, except he said to Jacob, his dad, if I don't bring Benjamin back, you can kill my two sons. But Jacob refused. What Judah's saying here is something different. He's saying, if I don't bring Benjamin back, I will personally take the hit. Okay, the stakes are high. So that's Judah's plan. Go to Egypt to get grain and bring Benjamin back home. Now at this point, Jacob abandons his original plan and he comes up with a new plan. Have a look at verses 11 to 13. He loads up his sons with all sorts of goodies and presents to butter up the man in Egypt And he also tells them to take double the amount of silver and thereby return the silver that they accidentally stole last time. So that's Jacob's new plan. Send his sons to Egypt with bribes so that the man lets everyone go home. Okay? Now Jacob, by the way, has spent his whole life not just lying, but also bribing 
in order to get what he wants. You know, when he was younger, he stole his older brother Esau's birthright by bribing Esau with soup and then by lying to his father by pretending to be Esau. And that was just the beginning of his life of lying and bribery. And you can see him try to do it here. We have to be careful about pointing our finger at Jacob because we have the tendency to do the same thing. When your life gets out of control, when things don't go to plan, how often are you tempted to do something dodgy to fix it? You know, we're just as bad. And we need to show Jacob a bit of grace here because he is a hurting, desperate man. His family is on the brink of starvation. He's already lost one son, two if you count Simeon, and in his mind, he's about to lose another son. His life is out of control, unpredictable, and if I was in his shoes, I would be crying out, where's God? But to his credit, Jacob lets Judah take Benjamin to Egypt, and in verse 14, he throws himself at the mercy of God, May God Almighty, he says, grant you mercy before the man so that he'll let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Jacob seems to be at the brink of despair at this point. But what he doesn't realise right now is that God has a plan. Both Jacob and Judah desperately want everyone to come home safely. Both of them have planned to bring everyone home, especially Benjamin. But God has a very different plan, a plan that they couldn't possibly predict. But there's something else that Jacob and Judah don't realise. They don't realise that this man in Egypt, who is actually Joseph, also has plans for Benjamin. Have a look at what happens next, verse 15. The brothers head to Egypt with precious cargo Benjamin, and they all appear before Joseph. Now, when Joseph sees that Benjamin's with them, verse 16, he decides to throw a feast for them all at noon at his house, and he orders his steward to arrange it. Now, remember that Joseph absolutely loves Benjamin. Benjamin is his only full-blood brother. All the rest of his brothers are half-brothers. And more importantly, Benjamin is the only brother Joseph has who hasn't hated him and tried to kill him. And that's why when the brothers first came to Egypt and Joseph saw that Benjamin wasn't with them, we saw that last week, he made sure that they didn't come back without Benjamin. Joseph loves Benjamin. And so as soon as he sees Benjamin, he decides to throw a feast. But this really freaks out the rest of the brothers, verse 18, because they think that it's all a ruse and that they're getting in trouble for the silver that they accidentally took last time. But Joseph's steward reassures them in verse 23 that they received the silver last time, so it must have been an act of God that they found the silver in in their sacks of grain, which we know is a lie. But anyway, verse 24 and 25, the brothers wash their feet, they feed their donkeys, they get the presents ready, In verse 26, when Joseph comes home, they bow down to him and they present their gifts. Verse 27, Joseph asks about how their father's doing. 
And verse 28, they tell him that he's still alive and well. And then verse 29, Joseph lays his eyes on his precious, beloved brother Benjamin. And he says, is this your youngest brother? The one you told me about? And then, maybe forgetting to wait for them to give him an answer to that question, he says, God be gracious to you, my son. And then he runs out of the room, verse 30, and he weeps. Then he pulls himself together, verse 31, and they have a feast. And Benjamin, verse 34, gets five times amount, five times as much food as everyone else. Joseph really loves Benjamin. And Joseph, as we're about to see, has a plan for Benjamin. Next chapter, chapter 44, verses 1 to 2. The feast is over. Joseph orders his steward to fill all the brothers' sacks with as much food as they can carry, to return their silver to their sacks, and also to plant his special silver cup in Benjamin's sack. Now, this is a bizarre twist. Joseph is now framing Benjamin for theft. Next morning, verse 3, the brothers start heading back home on their donkeys, but then the steward catches up to them and stops them. And verse 4, he accuses them of stealing Joseph's special silver cup that he uses for divination. The brothers say in verses 7 and 8, why on earth would we steal from you? You know, we already brought back the silver we accidentally took last time. And then in verse 9, they say, if any of us have your cup, that person must die, and the rest of us will become your slaves. Which doesn't seem like the best thing to promise in that moment. Fortunately for them, the steward scales down the penalty in verse 10, and he says that whoever has the cup, only him will become Joseph's slave. Now the steward searches all the sacks in verse 12, And surprise, surprise, he finds the cup in Benjamin's sack. And all the brothers tear their clothes in grief. And they go back to Egypt and they throw themselves on the ground before Joseph. And Joseph says to them in verse 15, What is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? Divination, by the way, is predicting the future using witchcraft. Joseph's acting a little strange here. He's framing his little brother, and he's also acting as though he himself is God. What's going on? In verse 16, Judah then tells Joseph on behalf of the brothers that they will all become his slaves. But Joseph replies in verse 17 that only the person who was found, who was found to have the cup, will become his slave. The rest of them can go in peace to their father. Now, no one actually really knows what Joseph's plan here was. You know, maybe he was punishing the brothers for all that they had done to him. Maybe he was elaborately testing them to see if they had had a change of heart. But I personally think that it's a lot simpler than that. I think that Joseph's plan was to be reunited with Benjamin 
in Egypt, but not with his brothers. I think that that's what Joseph's plan was. Joseph loved Benjamin, and he knew that Benjamin loved him, but he wasn't sure about his brothers. The last time he had seen them in Canaan, they were full of hatred for him. They threw him into a hole and sold him into slavery. He doesn't know if they've changed. You see, by framing Benjamin and Benjamin alone for theft, I think Joseph was trying to send his brothers home and keep Benjamin with him in Egypt. Now, what's interesting about Joseph's plan here is that Joseph knows that God has different plans. Three weeks ago, we saw how Joseph had dreamed of his whole family bowing down to him. And then last week, when he saw his brothers in Egypt for the first time in years, the narrator of the story points out that Joseph remembered the dreams he had had about them. Joseph's no dummy. Joseph has figured out by this point that God has a plan for his whole family, which includes all his brothers. But I think that it's clear here that Joseph is trying to fulfill his own plan. He's acting in the place of God with his cup of divination. He doesn't want all his brothers with him in Egypt. He just wants Benjamin. Now, it's worth briefly pausing here for a second to just reflect on our own lives. Sometimes we can behave a bit like Joseph here. As Christians, we know God's plan for our lives. We know that God wants us to trust Him and live lives of love and holiness and obedience to Jesus. That's God's plan for our lives. But sometimes, like Joseph, we have other plans. We sometimes think that we're the ones who can predict the future, that we're the ones in control, but we aren't. So part of what we need to do regularly is remind remind ourselves, I'm not the one in control here. Now, back to the story. Joseph has just told the brothers that they can go home, but he's keeping Benjamin with him. Now, how would you be feeling if you were Judah at this point? At the beginning of this story, Judah had a plan, remember? Go to Egypt and bring Benjamin back no matter what. But at this point in the story, his plan is royally falling apart. And as we're about to see, Joseph's plan doesn't get very far either. But here's where we begin to uncover God's plans for Judah and Joseph and Jacob. Firstly, Judah. God had a plan for Judah, in spite of the fact that Judah's life was a mess. Now, we saw this three weeks ago. Not only was Judah the one who sold Joseph into slavery and had lied to his dad about what he had done, he had also married a Canaanite woman, which was a big no-no, and he had raised two wicked sons who were struck down because they were evil. And he had accidentally impregnated his widowed daughter-in-law, Tamar, thinking she was a prostitute. Judah's life was a mess. But God had a plan for Judah's life. And you can see the effects of God's plan for Judah by chapter 44. Judah is a completely different person 
at this point in the story, to the person he was back in chapter 37. He's repentant. When Joseph accuses the brothers of stealing his cup, Judah doesn't lie. He doesn't shift the blame. He doesn't try to cover up his sin. Look at what he says in verse 16. He says, what can I say to my Lord? What can we say? How, how can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves, we ourselves and the one who is found to have the cup. Judah knows that even though he isn't guilty of stealing Joseph's cup, he has sinned in major ways in his life and that it's God ultimately who's uncovering his guilt. And so instead of denying the charges against him, which he's well within his rights to do, maybe for the first time in his life, he accepts responsibility for what he did all those years ago. He takes the hit. And then when Joseph says he'll only hold the person with the cup responsible, Judah then pleads with Joseph in verses 18 to 34 to take him instead. And he explains to Joseph what it would do to his dad if he doesn't come home with Benjamin. He says in verse 30, So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the grey head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. And then in verse 34, he says, Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, don't let me see the misery that would come on my father. This is the same guy who caused a ton of misery on his dad in the first place, who has sold Joseph, when he sold Joseph into slavery. You see, Judah's a completely different person to the person he once was. He's now selfless and self-sacrificial, whereas once he was selfish, sorry, he's now selfless and self-sacrificial, whereas once he was selfish and self-serving. He's repented. See, Judah's original plan was to bring his little brother home, but God had big, a bigger and better plan to bring Judah home, so to speak, to bring Judah to repentance. That was God's plan for Judah, to bring him to repentance. And this brings us to God's second plan, his plan for Joseph. Joseph wanted to be reunited with his brother Benjamin, but God had a bigger and better plan. Have a look at what happens in the next chapter, chapter 45. After Judah's speech to him, Joseph can now no longer control himself. Verse 1, he orders everyone out of the room except his brothers. And verse 2, he cries and he cries and he cries. He cries so loudly that Pharaoh's whole household hears him crying. At this point, Joseph ditches his plan to only be reunited with Benjamin. And then comes the moment we've been waiting for in verse 3. He says to all his brothers, I am Joseph. 
I am Joseph. How's dad going? Is he still alive? But his brothers don't answer because they're still picking their jaws up from the floor. And they're more than just shocked at this point. They're terrified. The second most powerful man in Egypt is the same guy they almost murdered and who they sold into slavery. But Joseph speaks to them and he reassures them that everything that has happened has happened according to God's plan. He gathers them close, verse 4, and he says, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been a famine in the land, and for the next five years, there'll be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it wasn't you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt, Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you, your children and your grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute." And then, verse 14, Joseph throws his arms around Benjamin and embraces him, weeping. But not just Benjamin, verse 15, Joseph kisses all his brothers and weeps over them, and afterwards they talk with him. You see, Joseph's original plan was to be reunited with his little brother Benjamin, but God had a bigger and better plan. He wanted Joseph to be reunited and reconciled to all his brothers. That was God's plan for Joseph. And that then finally brings us to God's third plan, his plan for Jacob. We've already seen what this plan is. Joseph's just told it to his brothers. And in the final verses of this chapter, the plan plays out. Pharaoh hears about the fact that Joseph's brothers are in Egypt, verses 16 to 18, and he tells Joseph to relocate his whole family there and that he'll give him the best of the land. So Joseph loads up his brothers with goodies for the trip in verses 21 to 24, naturally giving Benjamin five times as much as everyone else and then telling them all not to argue about it on the way home. And then when they get home in verse 25, they tell their father Jacob that Joseph's still alive in verse 26, which takes a bit of convincing in verse 27. And then finally in verse 28... Jacob says, I'm convinced, my son Joseph is still alive, I will go and see him before I die. And so he does. And so what an incredible turn around of events. Jacob's original plan was to send the man in Egypt gifts so that he would let everyone come back home to Canaan, but God had a bigger and better plan. God's plan was to bring Jacob and his whole family to Egypt so that they would survive the famine. God's plan for Jacob was to save him and his whole family from starvation. 
Now, you can see that clearly in Joseph's speech to his brothers that I read, that I read out just before. Verse 5, don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Verse 7, for the next five years there'll be famine, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve life for you. A remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph's very clear in these verses. It's God who orchestrated Joseph going to Egypt so that he might save his family. God was in control of everything the whole time. Everything went according to God's plan. Now, this raises a huge question for us at this point. Doesn't this mean that God plans evil? Because for God to plan to send Joseph to Egypt would also require God to plan for the brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. And so does that mean that the brothers aren't responsible for their sin? And if God's in total control of everything, does that mean no one's responsible for their sin? Because God just plans it all? Well, the short answer to that is no. And we get the longer answer to all those questions a couple chapters later in Genesis 50, the last chapter in Genesis. In Genesis 50, Jacob has just died and his sons, Joseph's brothers, are worried that Joseph might still hold a grudge against them for what they did to him. So they send him a letter from their father which essentially says, please forgive your brothers for what they did to you. And when Joseph gets the letter, he just weeps. And the brothers come and throw themselves down before Joseph and they say, we're your slaves, but Joseph says to them, verse 19, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. Literally, you meant it for evil, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. What Joseph's saying here is that God is in control and that he is able, he's even able to use human evil and sin, which humans are responsible for, to accomplish his good purposes. And this should be a huge comfort for us because it means that God is able to use anything in our lives, even terrible or horrible or evil things in our lives, to accomplish his good purpose to save us. <clears throat> you can see this firstly in Judah. Judah, as I mentioned before, slept with his daughter-in-law Tamar thinking she was a prostitute, and he got her pregnant, and she had two sons, Perez and Zerah. What a terrible thing to do, right? But if you turn to the New Testament, <clears throat> Matthew chapter 1, and you read through Jesus' genealogy, guess who you find? Judah and Perez and Tamar. God used the sin of Judah to bring his son Jesus into the world. And so, you see, God had an even bigger plan for Jacob's family, not simply to save the family from famine, but to save the whole world from sin. 
and he used sinful people like Judah to achieve his plan. But you can also see God using terrible, horrible, evil things to save us when you look at the cross. And we looked at this briefly last week. On the cross, the most evil act in the world happened. God's innocent son was crucified. But the cross was not an accident. It wasn't an unpredictable event. It had been prophesied for centuries. God had planned for it to happen. And on the cross, God poured out his wrath on his own son so that he wouldn't have to pour it out on us, so that he could save all those who trust in his son as Lord and King. And so that means when unpredictable things happen in our lives, even terrible, horrible and evil unpredictable things, and we're asking, where's God? We don't need to assume that he's abandoned us. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says this, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have, called, who have been called according to his purpose. God works in all things, even unpredictable, horrible things, for the good of those who love him. And so, when, and so where was God when many unpredictable things were happening to Joseph? Well, there's a guy called Stephen in the New Testament who spells out the answer for us. In Acts chapter 7, right before he's stoned to death, he says, because the patriarchs were, patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. Where was God? God was with him. God was with Joseph. And we too can be confident that God is with us. I mentioned last Sunday that my dad was diagnosed with cancer just a few weeks ago, and that he needed emergency surgery to remove a large piece of his jaw. Uh, great news, dad was discharged from the hospital yesterday, and they've come back with the biopsy results, the cancer hasn't spread, they were able to remove it all, and there's no need for uh, radiotherapy or chemotherapy. So if you've been praying for my dad, thank you very, very much. Obviously, uh, my whole family is very happy with these results, uh, but my whole family also knows that things like cancer are unpredictable. It could come back, we don't know. We can't predict the future. Uh, but what we do know, though, is that if it does come back, God is with us. God is with us. Paul writes a few verses later in Romans chapter 8, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we're in Christ Jesus, we can all be convinced, like Paul, that God is with us, that nothing will be able to separate us from his love whether our lives are messy or unfair or hard or unpredictable. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who is sovereign over all things. We thank you that you are in control and that even though our lives are unpredictable, you know what's going on. 
Help us to trust you in those moments. In Jesus' name, amen.